welcome to This Month's Archimedes, where we look at evidence-based answers to clinical questions submitted by real clinicians who've taken the time to come up with a specific clinical question, go away, check the evidence and appraise it, and then bring it back and put it in context to how that makes a difference to the patients in front of them. We also have a section on critical appraisal skills, and this month what we're looking at is predictive factors. You see, sometimes there are studies that spot how things will happen. You know, often these can be described as risk factors, that is, factors that will predict something happening like a disease occurring, or prognostic factors, and generally speaking, we use that description when we've got our disease process and you're looking at the defining features of what's going to make a good or bad outcome in that situation. There are a range of generalizations that people make from these sorts of predictive studies, and if you take an extremely non-medical example, then you might spot some of the weaknesses in some of the more medical ones. Say, for instance, that you're looking at a study that reports that a barking dog predicts the appearance of small children in a kitchen. Now, this is probably because the study was undertaken in a suburban home, it only occurred during the daylight hours, and that a family with a small child lived there. While the barking of the family dog didn't always predict a child later appearing in the kitchen, it did about 85% of the time. And the times when it didn't was the occurrence of a neighbour, but that was usually also heralded with a shout of cooey, or a delivery man, and that was accompanied by a large diesel engine outside the front door. Now the authors conclude that those of us wishing to predict our kitchens from muddy feet and disappearance of any biscuits that we have in the house should use barking dogs to warn them. The authors might have gone on to say that if we want to keep our kitchens clean and our biscuits uneaten, what we could do is muzzle dogs. And you see that somehow a predictive factor is just that. It's not actually causative in any way. Now, if you take that barking dog and put them in a different situation, say walking across the fields, they're no way going to be barking because a small child is coming into the kitchen. But what they might be doing is telling you that another person is around, maybe another walker, another dog, or something terrifying like a hedgehog or a sheep. When you read medical examples, you must be aware of these things. It might be that a predictive factor in one context is not predictive in another. That is, a family dog in the home versus a family dog in the field. And it might well be that just because a factor is predictive means that it has absolutely no power in making a difference to the outcomes. Our first question from Archimedes this month concerns the use of vitamin D supplementation to prevent acute low respiratory tract infections in children. There's been an association noted between low vitamin D levels and the occurrence of severe pneumonia in quite a few situations. And so, bearing in mind that whole prediction leading to possibly maybe being the way of stopping things happening, it went on to say maybe what we should do is give children vitamin D supplementation, not only to prevent rickets, but also to prevent pneumonia. The clinical question has been asked by Dr. Salma Rashid Ali and Helen McDevick from uh, Glasgow in Scotland. Uh, and they take the example of a five-year-old presenting with a fairly classical history of pneumonia demonstrated on the chest X-ray and also a medical history of vitamin D deficiency 
This is his second episode of pneumonia since birth, and you wonder if his vitamin D deficiency had been corrected, whether or not this would prevent his pneumonia from happening. They went away and they searched through electronic databases looking for randomised controlled trials of vitamin D supplementation to prevent pneumonia in children. They found 35 potentially relevant articles and bashed those down with scouring the references within those papers to five trials that were included. Now you might be surprised to learn that these trials range from uh, 48 children but up through trials of 250, 330, 450 to a trial of over 3,000 Afghani children that was randomised between vitamin D supplementation and not and examining the outcomes of low respiratory tract infection. There were some challenges with these trials. They all used different doses of vitamin D supplementation. Some of them may have been suboptimal in order to really pull up people's levels and they didn't all check to see if people were vitamin D deficient in the first place and just gave them willy-nilly to populations at large. Overall though, there was really very little evidence that supplementing vitamin D on the whole made a difference and prevented made a difference and prevented pneumonia from occurring certainly didn't make a difference to severe pneumonias which is a bit disappointing really because when you find an association that you think might be causative you always hope that you can do something about it the second question in the Archimedes this month is also about prediction and this is predicting risk factors for antibiotic resistant gram-negative bacteremia in paediatric cancer patients presenting with febrile neutropenia. Now while that might sound like a mouthful, it's actually a fairly straightforward clinical situation. Paediatric oncology patients treated with chemotherapy come in with a low white count and a fever. They're often subject to multiple courses of antibiotics, their immune systems are low so they might have picked up all sorts of weird bugs and they hang around the hospital a lot and as we're very well aware hospitals are not great places to be if you're sick because lots of people are around who are also sick and there's nothing like children is there for the sharing of germs. Well, this question was taken on by Gabrielle Housler from Melbourne in Australia and Ilana Levine working in London in the UK. They also took electronic database approach and decided to scour the literature to see what they could find in order to predict multiply resistant organisms at the point of the patient turning up. That is, when the patient arrives on the doorstep, can you tell who's going to have a multiply resistant organism and so you can use a different set of antibiotics with them, perhaps going for narrow antibiotics in one and saving you really broad stuff for those who are likely to be resistant. They started with 275 articles, but that came all the way down to five that were actually relevant and includable in the commentary. These range from a small study of 60-odd patients up to 280 or so from another couple of studies. But when you think about how common this is, that's really not very large numbers of patients to be subject to analysis. All oh, but one of the papers were retrospective, and the prospective one only had 30 or so children within it. And the quality of the recording of the data was variable between the different papers. Sadly, they didn't examine the same risk factors in each paper, and so it's a bit unclear as to whether papers that showed some risk factors really do replicate across the other ones because they weren't really looked at in the same way in different places. The factors that seemed to be associated were previous experience of a resistant organism, lots of previous 
antibiotic exposure and potentially long hospitalisation before the onset of fever. However, none of these were hugely predictive or none of them being hugely unpredictive in the sense that the absence of these predicting a definite absence of drug-resistant organisms. They conclude that whilst there are problems that are likely to occur if we continue to develop multidrug-resistant organisms, there's certainly nothing at the moment that can definitely select people out and we need to be very clear about our, what our local rates are um, and put out empiric strategies that will address the majority of the problems in our own local populations. We would love to hear from you about what you think about our podcasts, our Archimedes section, and in fact anything about the journal. Please do feel free to get in contact with us via Twitter or Facebook, or just plain old-fashioned email. I think we can actually take written letters as well, if you still know how to write and you have a postal service that works. So until next time, thank you for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you soon.